Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. I'd love to, we kind of, we did a sneaky uh, preview start two weeks ago on this series, Our House, God's House. God's House, Our House. Right, and, and really we're talking about what is this? What are you? What's this gathering? What are we doing here together? What, what's the intent of this? What's the point of this? Why do we gather? What is the church? Uh, and, and so today I'd, I'd love to get straight into it. I want to talk about uh, this gathering, this, this group, this people. I, I want to look at uh, our call to community. Right, because if we're going to talk about church, I believe that, that one of the first things that we need to talk about is community. That, that church is not just meant to be a, a gathering of, of people who, who see each other but whose lives do not intersect, but that it goes somewhere beyond that. Yeah, are we on board? You, you're keen to talk about community a little bit today? It's good. It's good. I know you might be cold. You can warm up your vocal cords with me by agreeing. That'd be awesome. Uh, but, but I want to start by kind of acknowledging the elephant in the room, if I can. Uh, at least the elephant for me. I believe that the elephant in the room is if you cast your mind back a year today, where were you, yeah? A year today, if, if, if the South Island was doing the same thing as North Island, which I'm fairly sure it was, we're in the middle of lockdown. We're about a month into to a lockdown that went for, for a little bit longer than, or a little bit shorter than two months, a little bit longer. It went for a long time. Felt like a long, long time. Uh, and, and lockdown, I think, exposed a whole lot of stuff in people. Would we agree? Anyone like, yeah, some stuff, it exposed some stuff in me. It exposed how small my house felt with my children at home all the time. Or it exposed uh, how hard it was to work at home. Or how much I liked working at home and how much really I didn't like going to work and didn't like my workmates. It exposed something, no matter what it was. But, but I think it's interesting because one of the things that, that COVID exposed in, in our community at large, in our culture at large, one of the things that COVID exposed in New Zealand at large, and unfortunately also in the church, is a rising epidemic of loneliness. You know, I, I found that uh, really interesting. People once removed from, from their normal rhythms of work and, and church and community groups realized that a lot of the relationships in their life were perhaps more a result of being in the same place at the same time than anything else. That, that when we stopped running into each other, I've lost track in the number of people who said to me, when I stopped just bumping into people in my day-to-day -day life, when I stopped just bumping into people at church, bumping into people at, at work, all of a sudden I didn't speak to some people for weeks, months on end. And surely that brings to, to mind the question, what is this relationship? If this relationship is solely based on running into each other, solely based on, on proximity, is this really a friendship? If the only thing maintaining our relationship is the fact that we run into each other, once we stop running into each other, what is the relationship? And I think for a lot of us, it exposed, man, I felt like I was connected to a lot of people, but once the, the method of that connection was removed, once it was just me and my house, and, and people had to go a step further than just bumping into each other, we had to pick up the phone or, or do a FaceTime or a Zoom call or, or send a message of some sort, those relationships started to, to fall apart. Really, I would say that this isn't anything new. Instead, what COVID did is it exposed something that was sitting underneath the surface. The, the, the 2008 General Social Survey, which is the most recent of its type, found that 16.4% of New Zealanders over 15 feel lonely on a regular basis. 
Further than that, it found 4% of New Zealanders feel lonely all the time. And this was two years before COVID. Things have not gotten better. But, but then it's interesting because New Zealand, if you look at the kind of global statistics, we're actually on the tail end of loneliness. We're doing better than most countries. The UK is so concerned about loneliness. You know how we appoint like a minister of, uh, of finance or, or maybe for housing or, or the environment. The, the UK appointed a minister for loneliness. An entire ministerial portfolio was not just social development or, or, or health, but, but the exact thing of loneliness. How do we solve loneliness as a country? You know, the, uh, the, the Surgeon General of the United States, the one who's just come out, he said the, the number one factor that he saw affecting the lives of Americans was not heart disease or wasn't cancer. It was loneliness. Uh, in recent studies, recent research in America found that Americans have gone from reporting on average 3.2 friends, which already was not that much, to 1.8 friends. And then countries such as, as South Korea and Japan are now anticipating that a single person household is going to be the norm. Single people, now there's nothing wrong with living on your own. But, but something changes when a culture is, is, goes from being built around community and people living together to a whole lot of isolated individuals living on their own. I, I believe the implication is, is that if New Zealand continues to follow global trends, we're just going to get more and more lonely. Encouraging thought, eh? This cold winter's morning, you're like, yeah, cool, doom and gloom. It's cold outside, and I'm just going to get more and more lonely. Life is, is going in a great direction. But I believe that we as a church, we're called to respond to this, yeah? That, that we're not meant to just sit back and be like, I guess people are going to get more and more lonely. I guess community is just going to degrade. I guess this is the way that society and culture is going, and we should just accept it. Instead, I believe that we have an answer for our society at large. We can say, actually, this is not the way that it's meant to be. People should not be getting more and more lonely, especially if they're in church. This is not the people that we're called to be. God calls us to be a relational people. And so surely we need to stand against this and say, what can be done to combat this epidemic of loneliness? So today, what I'd love to do is, is I want to talk about why, why loneliness is rising just shortly. And then, and then I want to talk to us about what the Bible says that we can do about it. So let's uh, bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and let's pray, because we need God in a message like this. God, I thank you that you are here. God, I thank you that you're with us. God, I pray that, that as, as I bring this word today, it would not be my ideas, it would not be me trying to convince us of something, but, but that you would speak. God, we know that, that we are not where we need to be. As, as, as a nation, as a world, in terms of relationship. God, but we know that you are a relational God, that as we pursue you, as we start to put in place, uh, go after the things that your word calls us to do, the community that your word says that we can be, that something in us can be changed. God, I pray where we're coming into this conversation today with, with hurt or discouragement, that, that we would be able to see through that for a moment to see what we could do, how we could be a part of the solution for ourselves and for others, that you are calling us forward into a glorious future, that you are at work in your church, that you are not done, that you do not accept loneliness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so this is interesting, right, to talk about the why for about two minutes. This is not the first time in global history that, that we've seen a spike in loneliness, Loneliness has, has spiked a number of other times in global history, but all the other times that loneliness has spiked, it's been the result of some sort of disaster. 
the last really, really big, the last comparable, in fact, we've almost gone past it now, uh, spike of loneliness was directly after World War I. And the reason for so much loneliness in the world at that time was so many people had lost their lives in the war that people weren't coming home and households were left lonely and empty. And so it's interesting that this is the first time in global history that we've seen a rise in loneliness without a disaster to, to point to to say this is why. And, and so researchers, and, and we're starting to catch up to this. This is a current thing happening to us that we're trying to solve actively in the moment, Yeah. This is a thing, if you, I, I used to work in government, that this is a big preoccupation for government. How do we combat loneliness and the rise of it? And, and researchers would, would point to two things leading to a rise of loneliness in, in the world. The first is a culture of radical individualism. And the second is the digital age, right? The, the combination of these two things is that essentially the individual has become the ultimate measure in Western society. That if it's good for me as a person, as an individual, outside of my relationships and my community, then it's good enough. That, that I'm going to do me and you do you. And if I do me and you do you and I'm doing what I like and you're doing what you like, as long as I don't infringe on what you like too much, then the world's a good place and we're, we're living a good life. And at the same time, a growing number of people, their primary community is, is now online. Their primary community is not in a church group, it's, it's not in a sports club, it's, it's not in school, it's not in the workplace, it's not even in a friend group established through one of those other places, it's online. And so with that, their identity and their sense of self and their sense of self-worth and their moral vision and their sense of meaning and purpose of life all come from the online world, not real relationships. Maybe you hear today and you're like, I've got some online friends. It's a real relationship. I don't mean to disparage the relationships you might have, but a relationship that you have with someone in that sort of way is not the same as a face-to-face -face relationship. And I want to build on, on why, right? That what comes is not just a, a fall in significant relationships, but a rise in the space between us. Disagreements that, that when it's a person-to-person -person disagreement, when it's a friend-to-friend -friend and, and real-life disagreement that could once have been left at, look, agree to disagree, we've got different views on this, but, but we're still friends. These sorts of different disagreements all of a sudden become insurmountable. We cannot remain friends with people that we disagree with. We, we see a rise of what they call tribalism in which identities are not based on, on what you believe but what you disagree with resulting not just in a decline of community, but a rise in a sort of anti-community in which we all live in these, these echo chambers, only hearing our own opinions bounce back to us. It's this fake sort of community that builds animosity to anyone different than us. We're in the middle, researchers would say, of a change in our culture that is as significant as the change in the Industrial Revolution. When people moved from, from farms and, and living spread out to, to congregating in cities and working in factories. That now we're seeing people are living congregated in cities, but they're living apart. They're not living in boxes next to each other in communities. They're living in boxes distinct, connected to people on the other side of the world because of the, the digital world that we live in. And, and this creates a, a new and a weird situation that we live in as the church. Right? Not only are people lonelier, but they're lonelier because community is being replaced with tribalism. And, and, and that's, that's a call, it's a siren's call, it's a temptation that, 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 that I believe we hear to, to leave the mess of a diverse group of people for the sterile comfort of a digital echo chamber. We feel this temptation. I know you do. Close your eyes for a second. 
only me looking, and I'm already putting up my hand to say I felt the temptation, so there's no judgment. But have you ever woken on a Sunday morning, perhaps a Sunday morning like today, in which it's quite cold and your beard is quite warm, and, and a thought jumps into your mind, rather than going to church today, I could stream. Right, I know how, I learned how to over lockdown, I learned how to stream into church. Rather than going to church, I could simply turn on YouTube and I could stream one of hundreds of different churches on around the world. And it's kind of like going to church. I, I, I won't feel like a bad Christian because I'm still putting myself under the Word of God. I'm, I'm still going to church in some way, I'm just not engaging in a community. Maybe I'll do like a, a, a bit of, I'll comment in the YouTube chat and, and there we go, I'm in community now. Quick show of hands, anyone ever felt like that? Anyone ever felt that temptation? Yeah? Got some honest people in the house? It's easy. It seems so much simpler, doesn't it? I don't have to get out of the house. I don't have to get the kids ready. I can stay here. I can stay in my pajamas. Right? I can just sit on my couch. I can drink. When they're worshiping, I can kind of half worship. I can stay on my couch and maybe lift a hand, sing the songs that I like, be on Facebook on the songs I don't like without anyone judging me. Best of both worlds. The call is real. The temptation is significant to step out of this gathered together real community and take it just online because it's easier. And yet the Bible would tell us that something special happens when we gather together. Right, to, to stop talking about the why and start talking about what we can do about it. And the teachings of Jesus and, and of the, the life of the early church, we find a world in sharp contrast to our culture. A world that is not defined by our individual needs and expectations, but that goes further than that. I want to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans is a, is a book that's a bit of a theological masterpiece, right? The first eight chapters or so are all about what God has done for us through Christ. Then chapters 9, 10, 11 are about what Christ has done uh, in the church, in this new community of Jew and Gentile, who at the time hated each other. They did not like hanging out, and yet the church brings them together in this new way of being in this world. And then we come to chapter 12, and it starts with therefore. It's this hinge chapter. It's essentially saying, in light of what we've said in chapters 1 to 11, this is what we can do with it. This is what Paul thinks it looks like to live in a community of believers. So it says this, therefore, these are my notes. Uh, you can let me know if you like my notes, uh, but this is what it looks like when I prep a sermon. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and Paul uses here this image of family. We've heard it talked about the church as a family. This is one of the places that it comes from. In fact, he's actually referring back to Jesus, who in Mark 3 says, my brothers and sisters do the will of the one who sent me, right? Jesus established this idea that church is a family. In view of God's mercy, that's Paul's summary of chapters 1 to 11, God's mercy. Offer your bodies, meaning all of you, not just some of you, not just your Sunday morning, but your entire life, every aspect of you as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? God has a different view of reality for us. Just because the world is going online, just because relationships are getting more and more distant does not mean that that is what we need to do. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. So what Paul is saying here is humility is the prerequisite of community. For as each, one of, as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we through many form one body, and each member belongs to all others. See, Paul then builds on this metaphor of family to be that we are not just a family, but we are a body. 
each of us with a part to play, but not exclusively belonging to ourselves. We're not just related as a family is, but we're interdependent, which goes directly against our established uh, individualistic culture. Yeah, where I do me, it's my life, leave me alone, it doesn't infringe on you at all. Because if we're a body, all of a sudden what I do directly impacts you. We have different gifts, the implication being that it's for us and for others. According to the grace given to each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And I don't think that that's an exhaustive list. And then Paul's warmed up. Right round about uh, verse 6 here, he's warmed up and he goes into 25 short, straight commands, instructions about how to be in community. He's like, right, now you get the idea. We're a family. We're a body. We need to be humble to be in this body, be in this community together. This is what it looks like. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. This is servanthood. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Uh, serving the Lord. Passion is communal. It's not just a me thing, but we share our passion. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, right? This is shared and is generous and it's practical. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I think some of us need to write that one down on our mirror or something. Because in the world that we're in at the moment, there's a bunch of, oh man, curse who curses you. If you're done wrong, then, then do wrong back to them. An eye for an eye. And I think even more so when we're Christian and we engage in the society that, that maybe you don't feel like being a Christian is the most popular thing to be at the moment, that we can be tempted to curse those who curse us. What would it look like as Christians, as people point towards our relationship with God and say, oh man, that's outdated and regressive, to bless those who curse us, to bring blessing and not curses. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. What, what would that look like to be in a community where, where we are not, individualistic in our response to life. We're not stoic when life is hard and don't share it with anyone. And then we're not tall poppy when other people have celebrations. We want to cut them down. But we celebrate with those who celebrate. And we mourn with those who mourn. We don't say, oh, look, your, your mourning is making me feel quite uncomfortable. Could you just contain your grief a little bit, please? But we engage with it, in it with them. We go there. When people win, when people have, have good things happen in life, we celebrate with them. Our first thought isn't, oh, God, why are you blessing them and not me? When's it going to be my turn? But that if they win, we win. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is a repeat of the command to be humble. It's the only command uh, repeated twice. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. I'm not going to dwell on that too long because it's a very uncomfortable idea that your moral view of the world is not just based on what seems right to you, but that, that what is right is collectively decided. That it's not up to the individual to say, oh, no, I'm doing me, and so it's just going to be, if, if I feel it's right, my truth is my truth, I'm going to stick to it, but that somehow there's wisdom in community. Somehow there's wisdom in a gathered, no, this is what we believe is the right way to behave, and that some of us might put aside our preference to engage in that belief. It is if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
important to realize as far as it depends on you. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Do what you can do, but you cannot fix everything, but you can do what you can do. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Right? Outdo them in love. If someone is oppressing you, if someone is coming against you, do not seek to try and one-up them, but, but meet them in that in love. And then Paul's summary, his conclusion of this whole bit is, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's be honest for a moment. It's a lot. Yeah? We're like, okay, cool. Yeah, no, awesome, Jono. I'll just put that into practice on Monday. Done. Romans 12, tick off. Bring me on to Romans 13. Let's go. It's hard. There's a lot there, and there's a lot to unpack. Like, we could be studying Romans 12 for probably the rest of the year if we so chose. And so what I'd like to do today is I don't want this just to be a, oh, man, community's amazing. We should be the church. We should be in community by sort of sermon, yeah? Because probably if you're here, you know there's a call to community. Probably if you're here, you know, man, being in community, being in, in this, this uh, body, this family that, that Jesus calls us to be in, that seems like a good idea, but then we come up against how we actually do it, and that's a little bit harder. And so what I'd love to do today is I want to give you two kind of commands, two instructions that I think sum up some of what Paul is saying here about how we can live life as a church and community. I want to end with, with two practical things we can put in place, and then I want to pray for us. Is that all right? We've got consensus, community decision, wisdom of the community. Yeah, good, good. I'm not just doing what seems right in my own eyes, although I did write these notes and uh, departing from them would be, uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> So the first one, if you're taking notes, the first of our, our two commands for community comes from a, a, a man named Henry Nowen, who I, I won't go into who he is, but um, if you enjoy reading some interesting theological thoughts, you should go read some of his books. And Henry Nowen uh, has a quote where he says, forgive each other for not being God. I, I just want that to sit in your head for a moment, because if you think about it too long, your brains will leak out your ears. Forgive each other for not being God, which surely makes you start to think, am I expecting other people to be God in my life, right? Is that, is that something I'm doing? Is my behavior indicating that? And, and I would suggest that maybe it is, because I believe that's the way that we, we incline. I want to remind you that, that no church, no community, no relationship, no friendship, no spouse, no family, no parents, no children, no pastor can live up to all of our expectations, that at some stage in our life, everyone and everything will let us down, and that includes yourself. At some stage in life, we will be disillusioned. It won't be perfect, but that's okay. Like, no, it's not. That sounds horrible. I would like everyone to meet my expectations, please. Understood, but, but journey with me, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who again, we're, we're, we're dropping some, some pearls of wisdom here, uh, in his book, Life Together, sums us all up by saying that those who love their dream Follow me on this idea. Those who love their dream of the Christian community more than the community itself, the real community, will unintentionally destroy that community. Convoluted thought, but, but follow me on this. If we like the concept of community, no, you know, church should be like this. 
No, no, relationships should be like this. This is the way that it should look. If we take a concept and esteem it so far that that we cannot tolerate the concept outworked in everyday life, we will destroy the outworking of the very concept that we prize. Because concepts are perfect. Ideas can, can be amazing. And then we take them and we start trying to put them into application and bits start falling off of them. People start behaving in ways in which in our concept they didn't. No, people should behave like this. This is the right way to do things. And all of a sudden it it starts to fall apart. It's easy to love the dream of community because it's not a real thing. It's a hypothetical situation. It's, It's easy to love the concept of community or church or relationships or marriage or friendship. But in practice, a concept is never perfect. In practice, a concept takes work. And that doesn't mean that we don't try. It doesn't mean that when we depart too far from the ideal, we don't address destructive behavior, right? We're not like, oh, well, concept of community is great, but this is the real outworking, so people are just going to be horrible to one another. No, we still try and pursue the, the way that it should be, but we don't ruin the outworking in pursuit of the concept. We address it. We bring resolution. We forgive, and, and then we move forward in trying to outwork it. We don't let the dream destroy the reality. Because if we don't, we place ourselves in a position of pride. We place ourselves in a position, no, 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 this is how it should work. I know how community should work. This is how it should be. And when we do that, what we actually do is we do two things. We create a shame position for ourselves. Because if we stand on a concept, if we expect 100% perfection from others at some stage in our life, we will not meet 100%. If you're anything like me, it'll be about two seconds after you said, you need to be 100% perfect. I will then not be 100% perfect. And, and I either have to ignore that and create kind of like a destructive toxicity in myself in which I live in this, this uh, you know, falseness. Or I have to realize, oh man, I'm expecting perfection and I'm not perfect. And now I feel ashamed of the fact that I'm not perfect. Because you're not always going to be good. None of us are. You create a shame position for yourself and then you create a contempt position for others. Where, where, when we're not judging ourselves and feeling ashamed, we're judging others and feeling like they should be ashamed. Contempt and, and shame are two, two sides of the same coin. They live in an inverse relationship. Often, the most judgmental people are also the most ashamed. See, so if we're going to live in this place of, no, we're demanding perfection, it's only going to destroy us. So number one, forgive each other for not being God. God is perfect. We are not. We will hurt each other, and, and that, that sucks. Being hurt is not fun. But we need to not let the hurt, not let the, the departure from the ideal crush what we're going for. We need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is why I love Romans chapter 12, because it's honest. There's an assumption built into us. There's, there's a tension. There's interpersonal conflict. There's an acknowledgement sometimes you won't want to. Sometimes you're going to want to get back at people. Sometimes you're going to be full of pride. Sometimes you're not going to want to share what you have. Sometimes you're not going to want to listen to other people. At times you're going to be jealous, and he just assumes that all of this stuff is in you. Which I feel like he's doing us a real favor. Not asking us to be perfect. He's, he's acknowledging that like him, we are imperfect people, and yet Paul calls the church up out of that imperfection to live as a family in a body. And the way we do that is, number one, we forgive each other for not being God. We meet each other where we're at. We forgive. We bring mercy. And then number two, we share and we stay. Because intimacy grows in the safety of commitment. See, we share. Number one, life can be rough. 
Have we ever found that? If you've lived a non-rough life, I can't even get through that sentence. That's how hard life is, right? If you've lived a non-rough life, can you talk to me after the service? Because I'd love to find out what your tricks are. You're like, I've managed to avoid all discomfort in life. I haven't been able to do that. But it's interesting because psychologists have found that one of the main factors in how trauma affects someone isn't experiencing suffering. In fact, lots of people suffer but don't take on trauma. By trauma, I mean debilitative lies and unhelpful coping strategies. Trauma happens, and most often, when we experience suffering alone. When we experience suffering and we don't have anyone else to process that pain with, when we don't have anyone to share it with, we don't even want to say, this this happened and it hurts and it's hard, and they can help us to move through that pain to process it, when it's just us on our own, we're much more likely to take on trauma. But, but it's not just listening, it's sharing. Some of us are like, yeah, yeah, no, I'd love to be in community. I want to share. Tell me all about your pain. And that's fantastic. But the other side of it is tell them about what you have. No one of us is just an ear and not a mouth. Some of us need to be a little bit less mouths, a little bit more ears. Some of us need to be a little bit less ears, a little bit more mouths. You can ask a friend, which one? They'll tell you, right? It's it's quite apparent to everyone but us. But we need to be able to share, and we need to be able to to listen, to share, to allow others in, to go beyond chit-chat, to get to talk about things that matter, to be open enough that you can be hurt. That's the catch-22, isn't it? To be in a true relationship that actually brings life, we need to be open enough that it could also bring pain. Because real relationships involve risk. There can be no vulnerability without risk, and there can be no community without vulnerability. And just a helpful tip, this probably isn't going to happen in the foyer. You're not going to walk out and be like, oh, amazing, I'm going to build a significant relationship right now. Right? 12.30, this relationship's going to be in the top five most significant relationships I've had in my entire life. Probably not going to happen. You can start. You can make a start. But it's going to take more than just chit-chatting to someone in the foyer. Because then what happens if, God forbid, another lockdown happens? Is that person going to talk to you for the next four, six, seven, eight, ten weeks? Because if it's not a significant relationship in which you are known and know the other, I would suggest maybe not. And so what sort of life are we building? Are we building a life that if we would go into another lockdown, our relational world would not suffer as a result, but we would go, hey, that's all right. I'm not just friends with this person because I bump into them on a Sunday. This goes deeper. Something deeper is, is built. And one of the main reasons that we have e-group is to try and facilitate this sort of connection. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet. I know some of us were like, ah, here we go, the e-group thing again. Yeah, yeah, I know you want me to join an e-group. I don't want to join an e-group. I don't like talking to people. That's the problem. It's in spaces like that where we join together, where we share, where we go deeper, that something significant is built. We can't ache to be known and not be willing to share and to pray together. I think some of the most significant relationships in my life have been built by prayer, by hanging around awkwardly in e-group and being like, yeah, no, things are great. Life's awesome. And then we get to the bit where like any prayer needs. And it's like, oh, if I'm going to be honest, yeah, no, life's not awesome. It's really hard. Can you pray for this? And then you pray and you let each other in. And then the person follows up with, hey, we prayed about this last week. How's it going? Are things moving forward or can I stand with you in where it is at the moment? Right, however it looks like in pairs as a group, figure the dynamics, but get together and pray. So share. And then the second half of that is stay. 
It takes time to develop significant relationships. It, it takes experiencing a disagreement. It takes experiencing a misunderstanding, being hurt, and then forgiving and rebuilding and not walking away. It's in the spaces between those moments that relationship is actually built. It's not a quick fix. And if we're honest, sometimes simply sticking at it is the hardest part. It, it's easy to be in a relationship with people that don't really know you. You can pretend. No, yeah, I'm awesome. I've got everything figured out. I'm all fine. But people who know you, who know your tendencies, people who you can't fool, it's a lot harder because they call you on stuff. Like, oh, I don't think you're all right because you're doing these things in your life. And we've talked about before that those are your negative coping strategies when life isn't going well. Like sometimes in life, there's good reason for breaking off relationship or stepping back. We don't want to stay in toxic relationships if it's destructive. We need to be wise. But, but I would say as a general rule, stay or be really, really slow to go. You know, the, the seasons where, it, there will be seasons where it feels like a delight to be in relationship, a delight to be in community. We feel like it's awesome to come along to e-group. You can't wait for it. And there will be seasons in which it's a discipline, in, in which you don't really want to go. You feel like you're not really getting anything out of it, or someone in the group is annoying you, or it's just not, like it's not a thing that your heart rejoices at. I would suggest that love is just tender emotions until it costs us something. That real love is sacrificial. Real love goes the distance. Real love says, I'm going to be in this relationship when it's good for me, when it helps me, when it edifies me, and when it doesn't. Not in a toxic way where we're staying in a bad relationship, but in a way where we don't go, the whole point of this relationship is to edify me, but actually some of this relationship is me encouraging you, me giving, and it's all right if we're in a season of you being encouraged and me not. Hopefully there's a balance and it's both at the same time, but, but we're not determining our relationships by what we can, can get. We're not just in this for us. We're not a community defined by, by hyper-individualism. I'm almost done if I could get uh, Ben up on the keys. I want to finish by recognizing that this, this idea is scary. That, that you might be here today and you've been hurt in the context of church. And I want to start by saying I'm really sorry that that happened. I want to follow that up by saying the good news is you're not alone. <laughs> because whenever a group of people gather together, people hurt people. But I also, I, I just want to challenge the thought that you might be carrying around that you've been hurt by the church. And as a result, you don't know if you want to try again. You don't know if church is the community for you. I want to say you weren't hurt by the church before you throw tomatoes. Right? You, you can't be hurt by the church, just like you can't be not hurt by the church. Because church is just a gathering of people. Church is an idea. Church is a label that we give to this. No, no organization ever hurts anyone. People hurt people. And that sucks. But it's a lot easier to forgive people and move past something than it is to forgive this, this concept, this ephemeral thing, this idea. It's hard to forgive an idea. It's a lot easier to forgive a person. And you might have been hurt in the context of church. You might have been hurt by numerous people, and so it feels like it was the church. Instead, it was just numerous people. And again, I'm so sorry that that happened, but we need to figure out a way to, to move past that pain or to stop associating it with what God calls the church so that we can step into healing. Because as long as we blame the church for the things that have hurt us, we're removing ourselves from the very community which can help us to heal. as a result of being hurt, you might struggle to trust. And, and that's a real pain. And I, I think Henry Nowen sums it up again in a letter that he wrote when he was asked, why do we need church? 
when I can be spiritual but, but not religious, when I can have a relationship with God on my own, when I can just stream church at home and, and go for a walk in the bush, why do I need to be in this community of messy people? And he says, the church, as you so clearly, as you say so clearly, can be in the way of God, but it will never cease to be also the way to God. This is the hard paradox of the religious life. When we give up the church completely, we will end up by losing God. I just want to pull out that idea. The church, as you say so clearly, can be in the way of God. You might have experienced that in your life. Like, man, I would find it very easy to connect with God, except there's this thing, the church, which gets in the way. The problem is, is that the church will also always be, it will never cease to also be the way to God. That outside of this environment, which God calls us to, and we're gonna have to ask God one day why he decided to do it this way, but this is the way that Jesus said it would work. This is the divine instructions that something happens in this community that happens nowhere else. That to be truly in relationship with God, it's not an individual relationship just up, but it also goes horizontal. It's my relationship with God and my relationship with you. And somewhere in between those two things, something happens because God is relational. We express something of God's character when we're in relationship. The God dream in me is not independent of the God dream in you. We are a family, we are a body. This is God's house, but it's also our house. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.